Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's great to worship with you today. Thank you for adding your voice to our choir. Uh, it brings me such a joy to get to be a part of this church and this family. Uh, if you have your Bible with you today, would you please open to the book of Micah? And if you don't have your Bible with you, uh, I want to encourage you to use one of those pew Bibles. And especially if you're new with us, uh, we're going to set our faces in this passage today, Micah chapter 3, and I'll refer back to it repeatedly. And so if you have a Bible open the whole time, it will help you as we track through and as we study this passage. If you're using that pew Bible, uh, Micah chapter 3 is going to be on page 824. And so I encourage you to have your Bible open and take a few notes today. Uh, let me give you a preview of Sundays to come. Uh, after today, we're going to hit the pause button on Micah for a couple of weeks. Next Sunday, Palm Sunday, we're going to celebrate Jesus on his triumphal entry into Jerusalem from Matthew 21. The Sunday after that, we're going to meet Jesus at the empty tomb uh, in Matthew 27. And so I want you to join us uh, on those Sundays, uh, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday. Uh, and just to make sure it is on your schedule, Easter Sunday, we have one service at 9 o'clock. We're going to pack this room full of people, and it's going to be glorious. Here's how you can help us on Easter Sunday. Come early and sit down front. Come early and sit down front. You come late, it's going to be a problem. Not a horrible problem, but a lot of you people think church starts at 8.75, but it starts at 9 o'clock. So on Easter Sunday, if you'll just come a few minutes early, and then if you sit down front, that'll be really helpful for guests, for people who are coming in a little bit late uh, to sit in the back. Uh, come early, sit down front. It's going to be a glorious day together. Micah chapter 3 is where we're going to spend our time today. A few years ago, uh, Hingham High School placed a wrecked car out in front of it, right in the front where everyone that drove by or walked up could see it. And it was part of a drunk driving awareness program. And that wrecked car was a warning to students uh, to, to not make disastrous choices, but rather to make the kinds of choices that are better for your future. And I remember as uh, I would drive up and drop off my girls, uh, it was not a pleasant thing to see. That car had been wrecked in a drunk driving accident, and that's why it had been saved and was propped up at all these different schools. Uh, and it wasn't the sort of thing you wanted to see first thing in the morning or even later in the afternoon when it was time to go home. Uh, but it was a message that was important enough to disrupt people's routines, to capture their attention, a startling image that served as a warning, but at the same time as a promise that there was a better way forward. And Micah chapter 3 is just like that. In our study of Micah, going start to finish, you know that we get to sit in some really beautiful passages and we have to walk through some hard passages, and Micah chapter 3 is a hard passage. It's a warning. It has startling language. Uh, it, it, it is meant to grip us by the jugular, to warn us of the deep and horrible impact of our sin against God and the consequences that come from it. 
And so Micah the prophet sits this warning in front of us to grab our attention, to steer us away from disaster and towards a better future. Now, we might think that this doesn't apply so much to us because, after all, we're Christian people. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. We aren't like the people Micah is talking to. And you're right, we aren't like them exactly, but we might, in fact, be worse in some ways. You see, you and I have had the incredible privilege of hearing the words of Jesus seeing the life of Jesus. And we've seen the cross and the empty tomb. And we've been filled by God the Holy Spirit. And still, we give ourselves over to all kinds of sin. It's in that way that we might very well be worse than the people Micah was speaking to. But we aren't without hope. Even in a hard passage like Micah chapter 3, there's hope for every person who responds to the warning by turning to God for his forgiveness and his grace. So is there any chance that maybe you've grown complacent with sin in your life? Complacent with what we would consider to be casual sin, easy sin, justifiable sin, not big, heinous, however, you know, just horrific sin, however we define those things or identify those things. But I mean, just... The, the little things of life, the places where we allow the devil to get a foothold. Any chance you're rationalizing willful or habitual sin, then Micah chapter 3 is for you. And so my goal today is to turn us away from our sin by sounding the warning of sin's terrible consequences. And Micah gives us three consequences of unrepentant sin. It's a hard passage, but it is not without Hope. I want to give that all to you this morning. Follow along with me as I read Micah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Micah says this, Then I said, Now listen, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, aren't you supposed to know what is just? You hate good and love evil. You tear off people's skin and strip their flesh from their bones. You eat the flesh of my people after you strip their skin from them and break their bones. You chop them up like flesh for the cooking pot, like meat in a cauldron. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because of the crimes they've committed. This is what the Lord says concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who proclaim peace when they have food to sink their teeth into, but declare war against the one who puts nothing in their mouths. Therefore, it will be night for you without visions. It will grow dark for you without divination. The sun will set on these prophets, and the daylight will turn black over them. Then the seers will be ashamed and the diviners disappointed. They will all cover their mouths because there will be no answer from God. As for me, however, I am filled with power by the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and courage to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion and to Israel his sin. Listen to this, leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and pervert everything that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice. Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe. Her priests teach for payment and her prophets practice divination for silver. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, 
Isn't the Lord among us? No disaster will overtake us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become ruins, and the temple's mountain will be a high thicket. This is the word of the Lord to his sinful people who have broken their covenant with him, not just in some minor way, but who have, people who have systematized sin and who are perpetrators of violence against their own people, against God's own people. In this warning passage, Micah warns us of three consequences of unrepentant sin. The, the reason the number three is used this morning is because there are three very distinct paragraphs in chapter three. He speaks to three different groups. He identifies the perpetrators of this sin. He then identifies the judgment against them or the consequence of their sin against God. And in each of these three paragraphs, he identifies for us a different consequence of unrepentant sin. What are these consequences? The first consequence Micah speaks about is the loss of God's help. And so in the first paragraph, verses 1 to 4, Micah identifies the loss of God's help as a consequence on these civic leaders who are perpetrating violence and injustice against God's people. So here in the first paragraph, Micah makes his audience very clear. He's speaking to officials. He says, now listen, leaders of Jacob. Now, what does he mean by Jacob? Well, earlier in the Old Testament, Jacob is a person, but over time, that name becomes synonymous with the people of God. So to say, you leaders of Jacob, is to say, you leaders of God's people. Uh, We kind of do the same thing here. If I were to call you all a bunch of Tom Brady's, I'm doing the same thing. Listen up, you Tom Brady's. Well, there's, there's one Tom Brady, but if I say, all you Tom Brady's, come on and listen up, you know the geographic people I'm speaking to. Well, here, leaders of Jacob. He's speaking to leaders of the people of God, the people in Judah. And these leaders are, are civic leaders. Uh, this isn't religious leaders at this point. He's going to get there in the second paragraph. But here he's talking about civic leaders, public officials. We might think of politicians. That's the type of person that he's speaking to here. People in positions of power. And so he points at these people in power, including the king at the time, a man named Hezekiah. And he identifies their sin with graphic language. He uses cannibalism to describe the way they treat the people under their care. I think it's important to point out that cannibalism was not being practiced literally by these people. Uh, Almost every Bible scholar will tell you that this is metaphorical language. Uh, Now, there are instances in Israel's history recorded in the Old Testament where such grotesque acts happened, but they happened in moments of warfare, siege, starvation, and desperation, not as indulgence by the powerful. Very different set of circumstances. So what Mike is describing here is he's using this graphic language to, to help them understand the impact of their sin against the people they're perpetrating it against. And we've already come across such or similar strong language from Micah back in chapter 2. 
He described how wicked leaders uh, would steal fields and homes and inheritances from people. They rip clothes off of people. They victimize widows and children. These powerful people are absolute monsters. And what is their punishment? Micah details it in verse 4. God says they will cry out for help, but He will not answer them. Can you imagine what it would be like in an emergency to call 911 and for no one to answer on the other end? Now imagine a God-sized emergency and you cry out to God for help, but there's no answer from on high. And what a terrible situation to be in. Now, here's the question you and I would ask. Micah has identified who he's speaking to and their crime and the punishment to come. Why does he use such graphic language? Right? You'll never find a VBS theme based on Micah chapter 3. No memory verses from here necessarily. Isn't he being a little extreme? Why this type of language? Well, I think there's two reasons. First of all, it seems he uses this kind of language in order to get the attention of the evildoers. Did it get your attention? So we read through and he goes into this graphic detail of what their sin is like. It gets your attention. And he has to find a way for his words to get all the way from his hometown of Morisheth Gath to the throne that King Hezekiah sits on in Jerusalem. And so he, he, he uses startling language to grip the evildoers, to get them to listen to the warning. Just like putting a wrecked car in front of the high school, he has to get their attention. But there's a second reason why he uses this sort of language. It's not just merely for the shock value, but I think it's to help us understand how abhorrent our sin is to God. This is not just shock and awe language. This is theological language of how grotesque our sin truly is in the eyes of God. This sort of shocking language is found throughout the Bible as a theological explanation for the horror of sin. Think of how Jesus spoke about sin. He said, if you lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. If you hate, you're guilty of murder. And when a person in power withholds justice to others, it is as if they are consuming them. So here's the question we would ask as we read through these troubling words. We have to ask ourselves, do we see our sin as seriously as God does? We gossip and we slander and we are impatient and we are angry and we are rude and we lie. And do we ever really feel the weight of our sin, especially from the perspective of the other person who is on the receiving end of our sin. What was it like when you were slandered? Did you laugh it off when someone lied to you? When someone has sinned against you, perhaps they abused their power over you. It wasn't something you just shrugged off. You felt like you were being devoured in that moment. And so we, we cannot justify and rationalize even the smallest amount of our sin. 
We can't just pretend like little lies are no big thing or little sins are not as big of a deal. We compare sins to one another, but when we compare our sin to the holiness of God, it's absolutely abhorrent. It's graphic, it's horrible, it's shocking, and we must hear the warning from Micah that God does not give aid to those who devour other people by their sin. So we can't grow complacent. We have to take our repulsion at the language of Micah and apply it to our practice of sin so that we hear the warning and we walk in the ways of God. So the first consequence of sin in this first paragraph is the loss of God's help. But Micah goes on to detail a second consequence of unrepentant sin. And that second consequence is the loss of God's voice. First, we lose God's help. Second, we lose God's voice. And so here in the second paragraph, verses 5 through 8, Micah takes aim at so-called prophets, people like him, the other peers of his, contemporaries of his, who claim to represent God, who claim to have a word from the Lord, to be the the men of God, uh, and yet they are leading people astray. Verse 5, this is what the Lord says concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who proclaim peace when they have food to sink their teeth into, but declare war against the one who puts nothing in their mouths. So the prophet speaks peace for the person that feeds them. But those who don't feed them, they declare war. Put another way, if you pay the man of God, he gives you blessings. If you deny the man of God, then he proclaims God's curses. It is a horrific corruption in the name of God. Look, it's one thing to be a scoundrel. It's another thing to be a scoundrel and claim to represent God. And yet, doesn't it happen still all the time? The examples are sadly countless of people with platforms and microphones and book deals and videos and television shows, and they claim to represent God, and they do it all to put your money in their pockets. Prosperity preachers are demonic in the practice of their craft. They bleed the innocent dry by manipulating and perverting the very words of God. They live sinful lifestyles with every uh, bit of paradise that earth can afford, but it will be fleeting for them. Brothers and sisters, be careful who you listen to. Be discerning at the person who is flying from event to event in their private jets in the name of Jesus Christ. Do not give prosperity preachers space in your ear. They need Jesus Christ. Where we see them, we see the incarnation of these kinds of Micah 3 false prophets. And so, brothers and sisters, be discerning and be careful at those who perpetrate violence or who profit off of the name of God at the expense of God's innocent people. And so, God announces a punishment on these so-called prophets And what's the punishment? The punishment is that uh, they will not hear the voice of God any longer. In verse 6, it will be night for you without visions. There will be no answer from God. 
In verse 4, God takes away his help. In verse 7, he takes away his voice from these so-called prophets. You can imagine a scenario where people come to the prophet to look for a word from God, and the prophet has to say, I've got nothing. I hear nothing. I see nothing. God has gone silent. Just do your best and get on with your life. Now, here's what's most interesting to me about God's silence. God's silence is selective. It isn't total. And this is made clear in verse 8. Look at what Micah says in verse 8. He says, As for me, however, I am filled with power by the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and courage to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion and to Israel his sin. So when God says he's taking his voice, he's not taking it away from his people in total. He's taking it from these wicked prophets. But God still has a voice in Judah. He still has a prophet among his people, and that's Micah. Micah points to himself emphatically in verse 8. You can almost hear him pounding his chest, not in an egotistical way, but rather in defiance of these false prophets. He says, as for me, however, I am filled with power. What's he filled with? He's filled with power by the Spirit of the Lord. That's the strength to perform the task at hand. He's not just filled with power, he's filled with justice. Whereas his opponents despise justice and pervert justice, Micah says, no, in the power of the Lord, I'm filled with justice for God's people and justice for perpetrators against them. Justice runs both ways, rewards and punishment. I'm filled with power, I'm filled with justice. He says, I'm filled with courage. His task is lonely. Remember, verse 8 starts, as for me. He doesn't say, as for us, as if he has a cohort of others with him speaking the same message. He is a lonely man with a terrifying and difficult task to speak the truth of God into power. This lone voice out in this wilderness town, it takes real courage to do what Micah did. Have you ever felt alone as a Christian? In your workplace? In your home? What about at school? And we, we see this in our teenagers all the time. That, that to be a teenager here and walk with Jesus, there are times you're going to be desperately lonely as you walk with Him. There are times when your view of the world is going to run counter to what every other voice among your peers and those in authority have to say. And yet you are called by God to stand in the truth of the gospel, even if you are the only voice to do it. 14 years old, it's going to take courage to hold on to Jesus Christ in your school. 44 years old, it's going to take courage to hold on to Jesus Christ in your workplace. But when you find yourself lonely in those places, you are walking in Micah's sandals. You are walking arm in arm with the prophet of God who, filled with power and courage, speaks the truth of God to those that need to hear it. Loneliness is not the problem for God's people. Disobedience is the problem. There's a cure for loneliness. You can forsake 
all that Christ has given you. You can cover up your identity as his child, and you can find a group of people to belong to. But look, I'm telling you, it is better to be alone with God than to belong to a group that hates him. And listen, you are not alone. Do you know how I know that? One, God the Holy Spirit is with you. You are never alone. Two, you have a church, don't you? (laughs) You've got brothers and sisters, a spiritual family here. You are not alone. You have a youth group that loves you. You have friends in your community group that are on your side. We are here for one another. We're not alone, family. Maybe instances of loneliness, but on the whole, we have God, the Holy Spirit, with us, and we have our brothers and sisters who have our backs. So while wicked prophets may lose the voice of God, God's people are never without His voice. He is always speaking to His people, whether it's through Micah or whether it's through you. God speaks his faithful word into the darkness of sinful places and lives. And that's true throughout the history of God's people. One incredible example of this, um, several decades after Micah's death, God's people were in exile in Babylon, and even there they heard the word of the Lord through his faithful prophets. One of the prime examples of this is the prophet Ezekiel. And when you read through the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel gives this repeated refrain over and over again. He says, the word of the Lord came to me. It's not just important what he has to say. It's important for those who are going to hear him to know that God is still speaking. His voice is still uh, penetrating the darkness of their exile and their sin and calling them back to him. God speaks wherever his people are, whether home in Judah or exiled in Babylon. But the one who continues in blatant, unrepentant sin will lose their sensitivity to God's voice. In fact, they will shut it out. We've seen it over and over again. Christian people who throw themselves into sin will in essence cover their ears in order to silence the voice of God and God will ultimately agree with that choice and give what they want. It's a horrible thing to lose the voice of God. But when we live in unrepentant sin, we're dealing with very serious consequences. The first consequence is the loss of God's help. Second consequence is the loss of God's voice. The third consequence is the loss of God's presence. In our third and final paragraph, uh, Micah speaks to the entire power complex of Judah. First, he spoke to politicians. Second, he spoke to prophets. Now he just gets all the powerful people together and speaks to them all at once. And so in verse 9, he begins to identify who these people are. He, He calls them leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, Uh, And then in verse 11, it's leaders who issue rulings for a bribe, it's priests, and it's prophets. So from the throne all the way to the temple, every single leader Micah has in view here as he levels these charges against them. And what are the charges? Beginning in verse 9, look at what he says to them. He says, you rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and pervert everything that is right, who built Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice, 
Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe, her priests teach for payment, and her prophets practice divination for silver. So he, he calls all these power brokers together to say, every single one of you, top to bottom, are perverting justice. You hate justice. You build Zion with bloodshed. What does that mean? Well, what is Zion? Zion is another name for the holy city of Jerusalem. It was the original name of that land when, when King David showed up and defeated a Jebusite stronghold and, and made this his town, his city. It was called Zion first. Just like Hingham's original name was Bear Cove, Jerusalem's original name was Zion. So you leaders of Zion, you built Zion with bloodshed. And here, I don't think this is metaphorical language. We can envision a scenario where people in power would take the lives of others in order to get what they wanted. If these people stood in the way of them getting land, getting homes, getting power, getting prestige, they could quite easily have them killed, and injustice would ensure that it got done. There's one prominent example of this from earlier in the Old Testament. You're familiar with this story where a person in power shed blood to cover up sin. It was King David who took what he wanted from Bathsheba and then had her husband Uriah killed in an attempt to cover up his sin. You build Zion with bloodshed, he says to these leaders. Jerusalem with injustice. You've got leaders who rule only for bribes, priests who only want payment, prophets who only do what they're supposed to do for silver. It's a system that is corrupt top to bottom. What are they guilty of ultimately? Well, in this passage uh, throughout chapter 3, Micah shines a spotlight on their perversion of justice. Justice is mentioned in each of the three paragraphs of chapter 3. And so what are we talking about when we talk about justice in the Bible? This word justice in the Bible is a layered word. It doesn't have just a nice, neat, simple definition. It has layers of meaning. And so it involves four areas of meaning at least. One is it deals with equality or fairness. What, what do people have a right to? What, what should people enjoy? What can they have? A person has these rights given by God. Justice ensures fairness is at play for all people. Second would be personal accountability. So that in a courtroom setting, the innocent are declared innocent and the guilty are declared guilty. You can't bribe the judge to get the ruling you want. And so justice would ensure personal accountability. A third component of biblical justice is collective responsibility. Throughout the Old Testament, God commands His people to care for vulnerable populations. We cannot argue against this. We cannot cover our eyes to this. You start in the book of Deuteronomy and over and over again, you will hear God command his people to care for widows, orphans, the foreigner among you, and the poor. Here are these four holy groups of vulnerable people in the eyes of God. And they are to receive special care collectively from God's people. We bear this responsibility together to care for vulnerable people. The people these people identified by God are people who are just days away from starvation if it were not for the help of God's people. 
So we've already seen in Micah chapter 2 where widows and children are devoured by people in power. Justice requires corporate responsibility that we care for those among us who are without. And then a fourth aspect of biblical justice is access to God. Micah's already pointed out prophets who lead people astray. Justice ensures that all people are able to stand before God and to hear His good news. So if you think about a Venn diagram, justice sits at the center of this intersection between fairness, personal accountability, collective responsibility, and access to God. Over and over, Micah references justice. Your favorite Bible verse from the book of Micah has the word justice in it. You've got to know what it means. If you look to our culture, you're going to get a different definition of what justice is. And sometimes, if you listen to preachers with platforms, you're going to get an even more different definition of what justice is. We've got to let Micah inform us. Let the Bible tell us what this is. What's the punishment for perverting justice? Look at verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become ruins, and the temple's mountain will be a high thicket. So the punishment in verse 12 is that the temple of God in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. In fact, the holy city is going to be plowed like a field. But the punishment here is not the loss of buildings. The punishment here is the loss of the very presence of God. The temple is not just a building. It is the very unique dwelling place of God. It is the house of the Lord. And so when the temple is gone, God's presence is removed from his people. Now, do you remember the first punishment? It was the loss of God's help. And and the second consequence was the loss of God's voice. And this third consequence is the loss of God's presence. Do you notice how these three consequences increase in intensity from one to the next? It's an awful thing to lose God's help. It's a terrifying thing to lose God's voice. It is unthinkable to lose the presence of God. Here's where you push back and you say, Cody, are are you saying to me that as a Christian, if I sin enough, then God will leave me? And that's not what I'm saying. That's not what Micah is saying. I want you to remember who Micah is speaking to here. He is speaking to those who have utterly broken their covenant with God. They are not believers. They are violent non-believers. These are not just merely backslidden people. They are rebels against God through and through. But you are a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus hung on the cross? He asked this question of God the Father. It's a line from Psalm 22. He said, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Jesus asked that question, not because he didn't know the answer, but because we needed to hear it. We needed to see our Savior forsaken for our benefit. He was forsaken so that you could be accepted. So when we recognize sin in our lives, Our motivation to fight against it is not so that we don't lose God. 
Our motivation to fight our sin is because He has never left us or forsaken us. And there we find power, and there we find joy, and there we find courage to confront our sin, to drag it into the light of the gospel, and to let God heal us and forgive us and bring times of refreshing again. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I would listen closely to what Micah has to say here and to know that these consequences are very real consequences, not just metaphorical things, but even for sinners who who stand opposed to God, God still offers help in ways. Can you look at your life, friend, and, and see areas where you think, look, only God helped me here. That's the only way I got through is God helped me. Or maybe you can look back in your life, you can say, hey, here was a time when I heard the voice of God. In fact, today from Micah chapter 3, you're hearing God's faithful voice from these pages. Or you might say, hey, I know that God has been with me, and I know that's true in some ways of common grace that God has been with you. And friend, all of those things are there to woo you. God has acted to draw you to Him. Micah gave these warnings in these words to these people so that they would turn back to God. And the same is true for you as well, that you would turn to Jesus Christ, who was forsaken on your behalf. He is God in the flesh who died in your place for your sin. He rose from the dead three days later. We're going to celebrate that in full in two Sundays. But you know what we're going to celebrate next Sunday? The resurrection. Every time we gather on Sundays, it's Resurrection Sunday. We cannot get over the fact that He died for us, and yet He lives. And He has given salvation to everyone that turns to Him in faith. And that's how you should respond today to Micah chapter 3, is to turn to Jesus Christ for your salvation. So this has been a hard passage. Micah has announced really serious consequences on very serious sin here in chapter 3. He told us that unrepentant sin forfeits God's help, loses God's voice, loses God's presence. How did Micah's original audience respond to this message? Well, about 100 years after Micah died... Another prophet of God was preaching a similar message. His name was Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, just like Micah, decades before him, was telling kings and priests and power brokers, God is going to destroy this city and this temple because of your sin. And it upset some people. People in power don't like to be challenged. And so they wanted Jeremiah to be killed. This big courtroom scene unfolds in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 26. And there you have a group of religious leaders from Jerusalem saying, we should kill Jeremiah because he's a traitor against God's people and he's a heretic against God. But then you have another group of people that rise up and say, no. Don't you remember Micah the Morishite? He said the same thing to King Hezekiah, and King Hezekiah didn't kill him, but rather, King Hezekiah turned to the Lord and sought the Lord's favor and all of his people with him. Jeremiah 26 gives us incredible insight into Micah chapter 3. For at least a little bit of time in Micah's life, the king turned to God. 
and people turned to God. They heard the hard words from Micah, and it awakened their hearts. It had its desired effect. It wasn't just yelling words into the atmosphere with no effect, but people's hearts were melted and changed when they were confronted with the realities of the consequences of their sin. Like Hezekiah and like these people, we need to hear the prophet's voice And maybe today you need to turn back to God. But isn't repentance hard? It's it's hard for us to admit, man, I'm just, I've messed up. And and I've, I've just, I've gone my own way. It's hard to confront our sin. But when we do, the result is always and only joy. When you turn to the Lord from your sin... And you seek times of refreshing. Joy is always the result. It's the stuff of songs. In fact, our oldest hymnal has this incredible song about the joy that comes from repentance and confession of sin. It's found in Psalm chapter 32. And the words of the song go a little something like this. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When the great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Let's pray together. So, Father, thank you for this hard word, a startling word, difficult language that wakes us from our spiritual slumber so that we would turn from our sin and know the joy of forgiveness again. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that you would would woo them once more, that we would feel the weight of our sin, its impact on our relationships, and Lord, that we would not make excuses or justify, but we we would hate it, and we would go to war against it, And we would do so in the power we have from the Spirit of God in us. Lead us into this truth, away from sin, away from temptation. Lord, let us be a people of real spiritual courage as we speak the truth of God and as we live out the gospel. Let us be like Micah, to be filled with power by the Spirit, to be filled with justice, to be filled with courage so that we would know we are never alone. You are always with us. Lord, I pray for our friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. God, I pray that, that the words of Micah would capture their hearts. Lord, that 
Today they would hear your voice and they would turn to you through faith in Jesus Christ. Bring salvation, renewal, forgiveness, and let songs of joy erupt from us as a result. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, this morning uh, we're going to respond to the Word of God.